We're reminded in this season of Advent that our hope for a reconciled, renewed, and peace-filled world rests not in our own efforts, important as as these efforts are, but rather in the return of Jesus, our King. Because Jesus is coming back to right every wrong and to fix everything that's broken, we can take heart in a world where life is often disorienting and painful. And I don't know about you, but I take great comfort in that truth that's at the heart of the season. Mainly because I know that my own efforts in working toward God's justice and reconciliation and renewal of this world are fraught with failure, with half-heartedness, with self-interest, with misunderstanding, and with pride. So it's deeply encouraging to remember that my woefully inadequate efforts for bringing about the reconciliation and renewal of God's world as part of his people, these efforts are not the final answer or the final hope. Thanks be to God. But Jesus will do it. And there's tremendous hope and tremendous joy in that reality that we remember and focus on during the Advent season. But as encouraging as the return of Jesus is and should be, the thought of his sure coming should also call for something in addition to rekindled hope and encouragement. It it calls for renewed repentance. And that will be our focus this morning, and our way into this is through Luke chapter 3. If you have your Bible, I would encourage you to open up to Luke chapter 3 and to the ministry that God has given to the forerunner of Jesus, John the Baptist. In verse 2, we read that the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. So his ministry was coming out of a direct word that God had given to him. And what was the word? What was he doing? Verse 4, he was going around all the region around the Jordan and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The herald, John, of the long-awaited salvation. So the quotation that comes right after this is Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5. These were very well-known words in the the consciousness of the Jewish people in John's day. It was like four four score and seven years ago, or I pledge allegiance, or etc. These were words that that resonated with a hope and a truth, not with the nationalism that I just expressed, but with hope and truth that God would come back and God would do this great and final work that that he was promising to do. So here's the one who's come to announce to the world that God's great salvation that's been waiting, that we've been waiting for is going to come. And what does he have to say? He calls people to repentance. Why? So that they might experience the return of God as a moment of joyful liberation and not as a moment of judgment and wrath. This was serious business. And God sent John into the world to prepare the way for the coming of God which would mean one of these two things. And John's ministry was aiming to see people experience the coming of God as joyful liberation. His ministry was aimed at a problem in particular, and we'll see this, common back then, and I would say still very common today, the problem of superficial identification. Superficial identification. The Jews that came out of the wilderness or came out into the wilderness thought that they were on the right side. 
They had Abraham as their father. Verse 8. And this was their security and their comfort. They were born into the right family. They had the right pedigree. They said the right words. But John's message to them was that all of this was a false place or derived for them a false sense of security and a false sense of comfort. Their relation to God was only superficial. Jesus will later say something very similar. And this is a theme in his own ministry. We saw this in Mark 7 many weeks ago when he quotes Isaiah 29, 13 and says, This people honors me with their lips. They have the right words. They say the right things. Jeremiah 7, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. It's a beautiful moment when, or maybe it's not beautiful, it's a scary moment when Jeremiah the prophet is saying to the people of God, look, you're, you're trusting in having all the right symbols and words and mantras, but your life, look at your life. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. John, the prophet that he is, sees this immediately when they come out to him in the wilderness. And so the herald of salvation, look at his first words, verse 7. These are tough. These make us kind of squirm. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? The, The point that John is making is this. Your words and your pedigree may be right, but your lifestyle, the way that you live, your actions and your attitude toward others are not on the side of God. Rather, you're more like vipers, a brood of vipers. Now, John doesn't make the explicit connection to the serpent in Genesis 3, but it's hard not to hear that echo here, especially when we know the rest of the Gospels and the story that Jesus is telling, where in John 8 in particular, when the Jews say, look, our father is Abraham, and he says, no. Do you remember what he says? He says, no, your father is the devil. It's it's an extreme confrontation, and I, I think that confrontation is nascently present here, with John's meeting of these people who come out to him in the wilderness. You are a brood of vipers, he says. You're not living like the children of Abraham that you give lip service to being, but rather you're working, in the, you're, you're working against the ways of God's life. You're colluding with death and evil and the powers of darkness. And in this state, with merely superficial identification, you are a tree that bears no fruit. Verse 9, even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. What John is saying to this group of people that are coming out to him is that the coming of God will not be something that you experience as a moment of salvation in liberation as you are hoping falsely. Instead, it will be for you the experience of judgment and wrath, which is God's settled judgment against all that destroys his good creation. The wrath of God is the flip side of God's great love for his world. It is not capricious. It is not out of his control but it is his settled disposition against the powers and all those who collude with those powers that wreak havoc in his world. And God's commitment to renewing the world and making all things new, his commitment entails that the world will be rid of those things that undermine his good purposes and will. 
So what's the solution? We're just in the text. So what's the solution to this problem that John lays out to those coming out to him in the wilderness? It's clear in verse 8. Bear fruits, he says. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. That is, demonstrate with your actions that your heart really has been changed. Authenticate the profession of your lips by the way of your life. Show deep transformation. Well, then the next question, so what, all right, John, great, good answer. What then are the fruits that are in keeping with repentance? Repentance is is changing one's mind. It's changing one's loyalties and allegiances. It's turning around. It's relinquishing one set of values and agenda for flourishing and embracing a different one, God's one. So fruits that are in keeping with repentance are a life and specific actions in that life that reflect the will and purposes and heart of God, the values of God and his kingdom. And that's exactly what we see. So we see John will answer this question for us in verses 10 through 14 in these three quick interactions with three groups of people. First the crowds, then the tax collectors, and then the soldiers. Verses 10 through 14. They all ask the exact same question. And I think this is an interesting question to wrestle with. What shall we do? What shall we do? That's repeated three times from each of these groups. They're not asking, what should we feel? What should we do? That is, what would it look like, John, for us to bear fruits that are in keeping with repentance? It's a question I hope that we all ask God routinely in our lives. God, what should I do to reflect your heart, your life, your values? And the answers here are beautiful, and they're a bit surprising, honestly. So look with me at at the text. In verse 11, he he answers the first group, the crowd, and and he says this. The one who has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Simple. Be generous with what you have. Care for those who are in need. There's a weight. There's a weight of the biblical story behind John's answer here. This is so dearly, this is so near and dear to the heart of God that the vulnerable and the marginalized and the poor would be cared for. One of the reasons God gets so angry with his people in the Old Testament is because of their neglect of the poor and the marginalized, because they mistreat the sojourner, the refugee, the widow, those who are vulnerable and can easily be taken advantage of. This is an act of justice. God is a God of justice. We too quickly associate generosity to to those in need with just being an act of mercy, which in fact it is. But biblically understood, this is the right way that things are supposed to be. Those whom God has entrusted much to are to share with those that have little or none. And this is deeply a part of the heart of God and of his kingdom. The tax collectors ask the same question. 
in verse 12. And look at his response in verse 13. Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Tax collectors were notorious for padding the bill and pocketing the extra. You owed Rome $15, the tax collector came to your house and took $20, and the $5 went into their pocket, and everybody knew it. They they were a group of people that were known for taking advantage of their authority and their power and preying upon those who had no recourse. There was no real justice in the system. And so what does John say to them? He says, be just. Exercise your responsibilities, not for selfish gain, not taking advantage of those who are under your authority and your power, but collect only what you're supposed to collect and no more. The heart of greed and the radical and rabid self-centeredness that exists because of sin in the human heart is so quick to disadvantage others in order to advantage ourselves. And the way of justice in God's economy is precisely the opposite. It is to disadvantage oneself in order to advantage the other. That's what John calls the tax collectors to. And then the third group is the soldiers, and they come and they say the same thing. And we, they say, verse 14, what shall we do? And his response again, simple and clear and plain. Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. No self-centered acquiring. Again, misusing and taking advantage of your unique position in the society in which you live. By threats or false accusation, don't take advantage of this position. Instead, be just. Treat fairly those that you're existing with in the society around you. And also, what does he add here? Be content. Cut out that heart of greed and acquisition that drives this injustice. And be content with your wages, with what God has rightfully given to you. Rest in that contentment. Do you see how down-to-earth and practical John's responses are about, well, what does it mean to bear fruits in keeping with repentance? He says it's a life that is transformed, but in such a way that the transformation of that life is evident at the office, or in our neighborhood, or among our families. And all of his responses reveal a disposition toward the other that fits with the plank of the kingdom of God, that is that human need takes precedent over everything else. And that human beings made in the image of God are to be cared for and loved, not exploited or ignored, but to be treated with dignity and fairly. And John's heart here is to say to those who have come to him, this is what deep transformation looks like. This is what the fruit of repentance looks like. A life of justice and generosity with one's neighbor. And John's basic argument, picked up later by Jesus, is that this is the way to tell if you're on God's side. It's no use appealing to what you say or to what you claim 
that you're an Anglican or a Baptist or a Presbyterian or a Congregationalist or that you believe that God is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit or that you believe in the doctrine of justification by grace alone through faith alone. Those are words, not unimportant words, words that we care deeply about in this community. But John's argument here is that your life, your life reveals the fact of your changed heart. That true repentance, true handing over of our lives to God always produces fruit that looks like this. Jesus says in his own ministry, you will know a tree by its fruit. And James says in his epistle, I will show you my faith by my works. Let's be really clear. The fruit and the works do not save us. This is really important, especially when we come to texts like this in Scripture. God is the agent of salvation. God saves us by grace through faith. Our salvation is a sheer gift given to us by God and by his power that works on us, those who are woefully undeserving of his grace and mercy and forgiveness. And to this gift, we contribute nothing. But this gift, which we experience subjectively as genuine faith and repentance, never remains alone. God's grace transforms the heart and it renews the heart. Jesus' ministry is about the heart. And this changes our lives in observable ways. So what John is saying to those who are coming out to him, he's saying, look, the, the lack of observable change in your life reflects a, a lack of real heart transformation and change. Craig Blomberg, a New Testament scholar, said this, someone who never gives to the Lord's work or cares for the poor in any way, demonstrates that nothing has ever happened in their lives that could qualify as regeneration. To use John's language here, that that person doesn't bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Instead, they embody this case of superficial identification. And to one like this, Jesus speaks later in Luke 6 when he says, Why why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? It's in the little section where he says, you know, I'll show you what the man is like who hears my words and puts them into practice. He's like a man who builds his house on the rock, and when the storm comes, the house stands. But the man who hears my words and doesn't put them into practice, the storms will come. And the the collapse of that house will be great. Why, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? I realize these are challenging words in Scripture. But the teaching of them here, and we do them here in Advent because we're awaiting the coming of the King. The teaching of John the Baptist is an invitation to us to consider our own lives. Yes, in fact, in more of a sobering way. And ask the question, do our lives reflect a superficial identification with Jesus? Or a deep transformation? And maybe I should add a third category of 
a disinterested detachment? Is the fruit of repentance evident in our lives? Do, do we practice generosity and justice regularly, choosing to disadvantage ourselves in order to advantage others? With those that we have every opportunity in our life to ignore or exploit, do we see them, care for them, treat them fairly, graciously, and lovingly? These are the fruits, John says, that are in keeping with repentance. And a passage like this invites us to this time of, of self-examination. We might ask, well, the, you know, clearly you've laid these things out, but how do, we, how do I transition from one place to the other? How do I move from, from a, a superficial identification with Jesus to a deep transformation? Or how do I move from a complete detachment from Jesus? either antagonistic or just simply disinterested, to a place of, of deep transformation. And there's a hint in this text that I want to close with that points us in that direction. John says some pretty stout things about Jesus. First he says, and this is in, in the, the, the last section that we haven't looked at yet, he says, Jesus is the one who's, who's mightier than I, and he's coming. And he's, the straps of his sandals, I'm not worthy and untie. He says he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. That's a ministry of transformation from the heart. And then he says his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor, to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Again, those are tough words for us to hear. But understand for a moment that the expectation of the Jewish people in this day was that God would come. And when God came, as Malachi 3, as we read earlier, when God came, he would bring about judgment. And his wrath would burn up those things that were no longer consistent with his will, that were opposing him and running against him. And it's pretty clear that John's expectation of the one coming after him is that he would come for that judgment moment. Did you catch in verse 9 that he says, uh, in verse 8, 7, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from what? from the wrath that is coming. John is on a, on, a, on a mission and a ministry to get people ready for that. He expects that Jesus is going to come and that with him will come the divine wrath that will be the purifying wrath that remakes the world and brings judgment. And so this picture that he gives us of Jesus is the winnowing fork, and it's a picture from agriculture back then, from farmers, will be in his hand and he'll throw up the, the stuff in the barn floor up into the air. The wheat will fall to one side and the chaff will blow away. And that's the ministry that Jesus has come to bring. But John's expectation and the expectation of the Jewish people in that day was not exactly what took place, was it? So much so that when Jesus starts to minister and work, and do mighty deeds, and heal people, and hang out with tax collectors, and sinners, and prostitutes, and surprises everyone. He surprises John, so that John, when he's in prison, has to say, well, hey, are you really the one that was supposed to come? Because I don't see the winnowing fork, and I'm not getting the picture of the, you know, this It doesn't seem like what, what I thought was going to come. And even John is surprised at the ministry of the God of heaven and earth. So here's the, here's the kicker as we think about a renewal of our own repentance, as we think about moving from superficial identification to deeper and deeper transformation. It is recognizing that when Jesus came, wrath did come as well. 
But where did it fall? On himself. On the very person of God at the cross of Calvary. And in that moment, God shows us his heart, his intentions, his desires for you and for me. Because it's in that moment of the cross that God actually deals with the sin that grips and and derails every human heart that prevents us from bearing fruits, keeping with repentance. And God shows us that his intentions and his purposes are not a gleeful kind of judgment. But he takes that judgment upon himself in order to give us opportunity to come to him in repentance. And it's the character of God revealed in the ministry of his son Jesus, revealed in the climactic act of the death and resurrection of Jesus, that moves and inspires us to a deep and real repentance. Why do you want to come to God out of a place of maybe superficial identification or disinterested detachment? Why do you want to come to this God? Well, I guarantee you, you don't want to come to him because you just know about his wrath and his judgment. But you want to come to him because his wrath and judgment were poured out upon himself in order to open up an avenue, a way for you and me to embrace his great grace and love, to meet him, to encounter him, and to be transformed by him. The very ministry of Jesus reveals to us the heart of God to welcome those who deserved one thing, but were offered another. And we are sitting here now between the confusing time of Jesus' first advent. It confused John. It confused all the others who were waiting for that great and terrible day of the Lord. And that second advent, which Jesus will come back, and as we'll say in a moment, he will come back to judge both the living and the dead. We're sitting here in between those two comings. And God is saying, this is who I am. I'm a God of love and mercy and forgiveness and grace. Come to me, that your heart might be transformed. When we, and only when we see God in this way, the God of grace and love and forgiveness, creating a, a space and an opportunity for sinners like us to receive him, to come to him. It's only when we see that that our lives begin to change from a superficial identification to a radical and deep transformation that we begin to embody the way of justice and peace and truth that God embodies in his own person. His great love is the motivator. His grace is the motivator that transforms us from one place to another. That's our great hope. And as you think about your own life in this question of, so where am I? The way for all of us to make this transition from disinterest or superficiality to deep transformation that God longs to bring is to dwell deeply upon the love of God in Christ, the grace of God in Christ, the forgiveness of God in Christ, that then moves and motivates us to truly turn, to truly repent, to truly hand over, and to bear fruits 
to live the life of justice as his beloved. Let's pray.